This is an ABC podcast. This is the WA Country Hour with Belinda Varischetti on ABC Radio WA. Hi, hi, how are you? Good to be catching up this afternoon, this Thursday afternoon. What needs to change to allow Australia to jump on the feed wheat opportunities that are opening up around the world? That's to come on the Country Hour today. Also, will any action ever be taken against the deaths of hundreds of cattle on two WA Indigenous-owned cattle stations two years ago? You'll get an update on the ongoing inquiry very shortly. And are you harvesting canola at the moment? And if so, have you ever thought about processing the canola yourself instead of just simply sending it off to the big pile to be exported? Well, the Mans farm in WA's Midwest, and they've just set up their own canola oil business. We wanted to value add to the existing commodity products we produce um, as a way of, I suppose, safeguarding us a little bit against the weather and the market fluctuations. More on that shortly on the Country Hour. First, though, efforts are underway to significantly increase exports of Western Australian wine. Industry body Wines of WA has teamed up with the Department of Primary Industries to double export volumes from around about 10 or 12% to 20%. And they also want to increase the value of wine exports. Wines of WA CEO Larry Jorgensen says it's taken six years to get to this stage and he's confident the industry can achieve these targets. The genesis is from our strategic plan which dates from 2014 so I guess it's a bit time in the making but it's always been recognised that we underperform as as a state industry regards the amount of wine we export from the state, so we're typically somewhere between 10 and 12 percent. The people we'd mark ourselves against, like say the Barossa Valley, are closer to 26, between sort of 26 and 30. And the other metric really is the, the price per litre, because value is as important as volume. And I think you know the Barossa Valley is is upwards of $15 a litre, and as a state right now, we're at 10.61. Some of the regions are, are sort of closer to 12, but. Our intent would be to to increase the value per litre to $12. So what we recognised was there were a lot of very good producers doing a very good job of exporting, but largely off their own bat, not as collaboratively as maybe some of our other peer regions were doing, and, and that the research we did around that suggested that to be the case. So the Export Growth Partnership is really about bringing together a group of, of willing producers who export well to collaboratively target markets that provide us with the best opportunities for both growth and value. You mentioned that the genesis of this particular process started back in 2014. It's now 2020, nearing 2021. So you've taken the next steps in progressing this particular export growth partnership by appointing a consultant. Now, why has it taken so long to sort of action this particular plan? Yeah, well, if you'd said to me back then that it would, I wouldn't have believed you. But um, 
drawing all the various lengths of string together and tying them into a nice bow is basically what it's taken. Getting a, a program that, that industry feels comfortable with as, a, as an overarching strategy or, or thinking piece has been a part of it. Working with the state government to align the resources that they have across a number of agencies and within agencies has also been, been a part of it. And it doesn't come without some investment on the part largely of industry, but to some extent, the government as well. When you start talking about those sorts of things, people have to be very comfortable that what's being proposed makes sense and is possible. And, and it, it has taken that amount of time, I guess, to get those bits of the pie in place. What will the end result be? Are we looking at some kind of trade deal for the layman? I mean, what, what can we expect mm. and in what time frame? So uh, really, we're looking at, at implementing this over a five-year time frame. And really, it's about aligning resources and effort of those top exporters, but then those people coming in behind who are aspirational and want to, to get into it or want to grow their export markets, aligning our efforts in some carefully chosen target markets to make certain that, that we do have that, that front-of-mind awareness as a brand and the example that we always use is how well New Zealand has done over the last 15 years. They have worked together as a team. They've worked strategically, deciding on which markets they'd, they'd work to. They initially went to the UK and did very well there. They then started working in the US and, and grew demand there quite nicely. That's really what we're looking at is a coordinated and strategic approach that involves harnessing the resources of a number of very good businesses and regions to develop awareness in market that businesses can then use to drive their growth. Wines of WA CEO Larry Jorgensen, 10 past 12. And you're probably thinking, well, this isn't a great time to be releasing a plan like this about increasing exports of WA wine, because one of the big stories this week has been the increasing trade tensions between Australia and China. And it's already been revealed that beyond Friday, so tomorrow, China will not be accepting any more wine from Australia. So Larry Jorgensen says there is a silver lining to WA's sluggish progress on this project to increase exports. In fact, he says WA's wine industry's basically dodged a bullet. There are a number of disruptors, you know, obviously COVID being one of them. And the um, inability to travel to markets, that's been a big thing that's um, changed how people do things. So it is a massive coincidence, Jess, that uh, on the day that we're <laughs> talking about something else, uh, we're also talking about this. In terms of the export volumes that we're putting out, I mean, has it been a missed opportunity, the fact that we do export such a, a small volume, particularly, obviously, now that China seems to be off the table? I mean, have we missed an opportunity there to, to capitalise on some of the the buying activity out of there during the height of, of the, that sort of relationship between Australia and China? Having all your eggs in one basket can, can also work across the market segments that you work in and being underweighted in, in export just doesn't make sense. So it was more around really just making certain that the balance of our markets is, is more akin to what seems to be industry standard and being able to have another double amount going out as export 
tends to put a bit more tension in the supply-demand equation domestically, uh, both within the state and, and interstate with, with markets there. And, and you end up with a, with a better bargaining position in those other markets. So it kind of is probably more about that than there maybe being having been a lost opportunity. Really, we're selling everything that we make now with a reasonable profit margin for most people. So I don't think we lost anything. It's a matter of just adjusting uh, the dynamics of what exists and what could exist going forward to perhaps get a slightly better margin out of all markets as a result of the tension that you introduce. And I guess on the contrary, you could say, look at it a different way and say, has the West Australian wine industry dodged a bullet in that it didn't follow suit of the way that some of the Mm. other states have approached their market activity? Well, I've certainly used that particular line previously. Um, We aren't necessarily directly impacted, but let's suppose that a a large proportion of the wine that did go to China from Australia doesn't, and it can find another market, then it it has a a negative impact on the supply-demand tension in the Australian market. So yes and no would be the answer to that. I think directly it's true that we won't be as directly impacted as maybe some other regions are as a result of what's happening, but ultimately it could do. So, you know, we think of ourselves as part of the Australian wine industry and certainly we'll be doing our part to help adjust to those circumstances. Wines of WA CEO Larry Jorgensen with Jessica Hayes. And just while you're hearing the news about Australia's trade with China, just like yesterday, Treasury Wine Estates announced to the Australian Stock Exchange that China's Alcoholic Drinks Association has made a request to China's Ministry of Commerce to apply retrospective tariffs on Australian wine. And it's believed the request was made as part of the investigation into claims Australian winemakers have been subsidised and dumped wine into China. Now, that investigation was launched by Chinese authorities in August, and the claims are strongly opposed by Australia's wine industry and the government. You can read more about it on the ABC Rural website. To make it easy, there's a link for you on the ABC Rural Facebook page. Quarter past 12. I'm Bevan Eats from Manjima, and you're listening to The Country Hour. On ABC Radio WA. Great to have you along this afternoon. Shortly, you'll head to the Midwest of the state to catch up with a a couple of canola growers who have just taken that next step and decided to get into processing and now into cold-pressed canola oil. So growing it, processing it, selling the oil. That's just before news headlines at half past 12 today. First up, though, it looks like there is now a distinct possibility there will be no action taken against anyone for the deaths of hundreds of cattle on two Western Australian Indigenous-owned cattle stations. Now, you might remember during a particularly dry spell, this is back in December 2018, January 2019, more than a 1,000 head of cattle died on Nookumbar Station in the Kimberley and Yandiyarra Reserve in the Pilbara. The Department of Primary Industries is right in the middle of an inquiry and the matter is currently with the State Solicitor's Office. But Western Australia's Agriculture Minister, Alana McTiernan, says if things aren't sorted by the end of this year, authorities may not be able to lay animal welfare charges. Look, I can understand this has been um, 
a, a challenging uh, process, I think, for everyone involved. We basically really have to leave this to the uh, prosecution unit to be uh, uh, to be making their recommendations. Uh, they are very mindful that uh, this does need to be wrapped up legally. Uh, this has to be concluded within two years of the events um, that uh, led to the allegations. So we've really only got um, a couple of months more before the time statute limitation kicks in. So uh, they are very focused. I have uh, uh, limited capability to influence their decisions here. So we have made it clear that they do need to give priority uh, to bringing this matter to a conclusion. So do you hope the decision will be made in the next well, two months? Have to, well, we will have to get uh, a final brief from them by the end of the year, otherwise the, um, the limitations within the legislation uh, kick in. I think part of um, what the problem that we have, and it's part of the pro problem that we've had with prosecuting uh, quite a number of issues here and, you know, issues um, concerning non-Aboriginal pastoralists as well, uh, is the structure of the legislation. The legislation relies on this notion of, um, of acts of animal cruelty where many of these things are probably better described as a as a negligence uh, and so it becomes problematic whether or not it crosses that threshold. So we're, we're currently undergoing a very profound inquiry into the animal welfare legislation. We're really looking at whether or not we need a whole structural reform. We've already introduced some reforms that actually set out uh, standards uh, and practices in the um, in the industry and so that this is an easier pathway uh, to prosecuting rather than the very convoluted mechanisms that we have to go through at the uh, at the moment so the the legislation is certainly not ideal the legislation is certainly not modern we are trying to um, modernize that legislation not always getting a lot of support in the legislative council to uh, to do that but we will um, continue to attempt to do this. WA Agriculture Minister Alana McTiernan giving you an update on the progress of investigations into the deaths of at least a thousand head of cattle at Nookumbar and Yand Yarra stations almost two years ago. 19 past 12. Well, the new head of the Kimberley Pilbara Cattlemen's Association is disappointed this investigation is taking so long. Luke Simpkins says animal welfare is a top priority for the northern cattle industry and so in the future he'd like to see a much quicker resolution to such matters. We're not obviously bought into these things, but I would have thought that uh, it would have been a quicker process than it has currently been. I think there is still time to get this thing done properly. Uh, and you know, even if COVID has had an impact on uh, the solicitor's office, it definitely has to be brought uh, to uh, actual conclusion. What do you think industry and the public expect to, to occur with this? I mean, ultimately, charges could still be laid if, if it was uh, wrapped up before that statute of limitations period is over. Well, I think there is a very clear expectation that uh, if uh, people are found to have done the wrong thing and if, that's, if there is a clear case to be made, then uh, there certainly should be prosecutions. Animal welfare is a, an incredibly important uh, aspect of our sector 
and the public care very deeply about uh, the welfare of uh, the cattle uh, and uh, any form of mismanagement, uh, recklessness, uh, negligence should certainly be uh, fully investigated and uh, prosecuted where that is possible. We're totally against any of these sort of things in our sector uh, and we really uh, are looking forward to the right result in the end. And I'd be confident that the Minister's view is the the same, that uh, justice should be done and should be seen to be done in this case. Uh, And uh, I don't think that there is uh, any any reason why that can't uh, can't take place. Look, uh, I think that the solicitor's office will bear the brunt of public disapproval if uh, if they can't get this this job done. Uh, you know, I have somewhat of an in, a background in investigations from my past, and uh, I believe that uh, with will this should be uh, able to be achieved before the end of the year. Certainly in parts of the, the Pilbara, there still has been a lack of rainfall. Uh, are you hearing from members um, any concern over really prolonged periods of dry? Are there any concerns that, that something like this could ever, ever occur again? Well, I think these sort of things are uh, reminders to everybody uh, of the need to make sure that uh, the infrastructure is, is there. Uh, and it's required to make sure that uh, you know, we've got the opportunity to keep Going through these uh, these dry spells that that occur, and you know, everyone's really looking forward to the wet season kicking in. And it's uh, by all reports, it's looking to be fairly promising in that regard. So uh, I think whether it's from the Pilbara all the way up to the Kimberley, people are looking for greater moisture uh, and greater feed uh, available uh, as a result of that. And in terms of, I guess, some of your Indigenous members, uh, have they expressed a feeling of like they'd need more support from the government in terms of skilling up and training some of their future generations for long-term sustainability in the, in the pastoral industry? There's been suggestions in the past of, you know, running pastoral academies. Do, do you think more needs to be done in this space? Well, certainly one of my interests, uh, I've only been with the organisation for just less than a month now, but one of the things I'm very keen on is training opportunities uh, for all the way from ringers up to uh, station managers, assistant station managers, admin staff on stations, uh, just to make sure that we've got the best practice with all our people. That's important uh, with regard to their uh, use of their own career development, uh, retention of staff. And you know, I've, I've spoken to the Minister's office, uh, Minister McKinnon's office, about some of these sort of matters as well. Always good to have a, a bit of uh, government support to to make sure the uh, standards are as high as they can be. You know, our people are very smart. They know that unhappy cattle uh, is uh, not good for business. Unsustainable practices are literally unsustainable, and uh, you know there'll be no there's no future in that. But uh, it would be good to. Uh, uh, have the right training uh, support and mechanisms in place to make sure uh, that uh, not just uh, events like Nungunbar don't uh, happen again, but also to make sure that uh, there is a, a good career progression for young people coming into a very good uh, sector and a sector that's got a long history uh, in the northwest. That's the new Kimberley Pilbrook Cattlemen's Association CEO, Luke Simpkins, with Courtney Fowler. Uh, no one from the Department of Primary Industries was prepared to come on Country Hour today to talk to you about this. Instead, Deep Herd wanted uh, a message passed on to you saying it believes the matter will be concluded prior to the end of the year 
which is when the statutory limitation period expires. It also says the investigation time frame is not unusual for such complex cases involving alleged offences under the Animal Welfare Act. And it's understood Nukumba and Yanda Yarra have since put in place professional pastoral management services and those arrangements have been in place for the last couple of seasons but as yet no one is talking from either property. Also calls out to the RSPCA but the Animal Welfare Group says it's unable to comment on the situation while investigations are ongoing. You can read more about it. The story's online for you right now. It's on the ABC Rural website and as always there is a link for you on the ABC Rural Facebook page. This is the Country Hour on ABC WA 25 past 12. Now, if you have a bottle of standard supermarket canola oil in your cupboard, just take a moment to have a smell of it if you get the chance because more than likely it has no aroma whatsoever. And apparently that's how you tell the difference between a fairly ordinary product and the premium cold-pressed canola oil. To find out how it's done, you're off to the Man's Farm in WA's Midwest, where they're not only growing their own canola, they're now pressing their own oil. So this is our cold press. Um, Our press and our filter came from Germany. We purchased those back in 2016. Canola goes in the top of the hopper and it comes through. It's a screw press, a mechanical press. So there's no heat involved other than the heat that it generates itself. Hi, my name's Fiona Mann. I farm at Eridu with my husband, Liam. We've been here farming for about five years um, and we've just started our cold-pressed canola oil business under the brand name Block 275. And what made you decide to press your own canola seeds and, and create oil? We wanted to value add to the existing commodity products we produce um, as a way of, I suppose, safeguarding us a little bit against the weather and the market fluctuations. We've also got some mates back in Scotland that do something very similar with cold press rapeseed oil, same thing, and it's really taken off over there and we thought there was an opportunity over here to give it a go. Has canola got a bit of a, an image problem? Because in the supermarket it is the cheaper oil, but you obviously feel there is a market for a, a premium canola product. Oh, absolutely. Um, that's probably one of my biggest marketing issues is that people think of canola oil exactly in that refined manner. This is a completely different product. Um, you'd need to see it to probably believe it, but it's a very yellow, vibrant oil. Um, it's quite nutty. Um, it smells like canola and, it's, yeah, and it actually tastes... It tastes amazing, but it tastes and the stuff in the shops just doesn't have that. And so what is involved in the process? You talk about cold-pressed canola oil. What does that mean? So we run it through a mechanical press. We don't add any heat to it, and we check that the oil stays below 49 degrees, which ours does. We check that every three hours, um, and we've never had a problem with it going over. And I suppose it's the differentiation between the commercially refined stuff, which is heated, it has um, solvents such as hexane used, It then needs to be um, bleached, deodorised, all the rest of it to get those products back out of it. So I suppose that's just the the true definition of how we differentiate our product. As you can see, the oil drips out from underneath those collars that are on the heads. Um, We're currently collecting that into a bucket, which we then transfer across to our big stainless steel vat. You've got pellets coming out of the machine. What is that um, by-product and what is that used for? 
So it's canola meal. It's a, a stock feed. There's nothing wrong with it. You could go and have a taste if you liked. But it is a stock feed. We're palletising it at the moment and we'll get guys to um, have, a, have a play with it. We've got a guy that's got pigs and someone else with beef and also some horse, horses. So we'll see how they are able to integrate it into their feed diets for those animals. We've had it analysed. Um, so it's, I think, 17 megajoules of energy and I think 38% protein off the top of my head so it's it's quite high in protein and energy um, so I think it's yeah going to be quite a valuable food source as well. Uh, we hear about paddock to plate are people prepared to pay extra for that? Yes I think so um, the ability to see that the crop was in that front paddock last year um, and that's the stuff that we're now pressing right there the food miles are just so low anyone that's seen our operations been really pleasantly surprised I don't know what they expected but the support of people um, has just been amazing. Just, oh, this stuff's so amazing. I can't believe, you know, you can do it here. And the pricing hasn't seemed to have been an issue. Um, it's, a, it's priced up where the extra virgin olive oils are. So, it's, yeah, its uptake has been great. That is Midwest WA canola farmer and oil producer Fiona Mann with Cecile O'Connor. 29 past 12 here on the Country Hour with an update from the newsroom. Here's Ali Colvin. Thanks, Belinda. Democratic presidential hopeful Joe Biden says it's clear he's going to win the US election after the Press Association called the key states of Michigan and Wisconsin in his favour. As the votes continue to be tallied, Mr Biden remains ahead of his rival Donald Trump, although the president's team has now launched legal action in several states. Federal police say they've charged a 65-year-old Melbourne man with foreign interference. He's the first person in Australia to be charged with the offence under laws passed by the Federal Parliament in 2018. Police say the man has a relationship with a foreign intelligence agency but did not name which country. Wheel clamping is set to be banned by Christmas after the WA government's legislation to put an end to the practice passed its final hurdle in Parliament. The government introduced the bill in June this year, saying wheel clamping on private property was a predatory and intimidating practice. Thanks, Belinda. More news at one o'clock. Thank you for that, Ali. It's half past twelve. You're part of the Country Hour with Belinda Varischetti on ABC Local Radio WA. And between now and that bulletin at one o'clock today, what really needs to change structurally and in terms of wheat classifications just to allow Australia to really jump on that feed wheat opportunity that's opening up and growing right around the world. Also, the results of the Mount Barker cattle market, Tracy Kilner along with those details, and also a response to those criticisms about the big dam that's planned for the state's southwest, a $70 million irrigation project in the state's southwest. It was really slammed yesterday by the former Department of Water Director General. Today, the department uh, responds to that. Well, the head of the Southern Forest Irrigation Scheme is going to respond to those criticisms. First, though, it's off to the Weather Bureau. Matt Boderhoven is with you. Matt, what's in store around the Southwest Land Division? Yeah, good afternoon. Um, on Friday, we've got a surface trough uh, in the Gascoigne. That's going to deepen uh, down the west coast uh, during the day. Showers and thunderstorms through central and eastern parts of the southwest land division. Also with some showers possible near the south coast between Albany and Esperance. Rainfall-wise, could see moderate heavy falls through the central wheat belt, uh, 5 to 15 millimetres. Uh, general sort of range, a little bit less in the south, far southwest. Isolated uh, up to 25 millimetres possible in the far eastern parts of the central wheat belt there on Friday. 
on Saturday. That surface trough will move inland from the west coast while uh, deepening further. Showers and thunderstorms east of a line, Meriden to Bremer Bay. Uh, rainfall around 1 to 5 millimetres, the isolated uh, up to 10 millimetres near the sort of salmon gums area and northwards. On Sunday, uh, surface trough will move into the southeast parts of the state and a cold front will reach the southwest district in the evening. So morning showers and thunderstorms in the southeast coastal, rainfall less than 5 millimetres. Showers developing uh, between Perth and Walpole uh, during the evening, uh, rainfall less than 2 millimetres. On Monday that cold front will move through the southwest land division. The models at the moment are fairly optimistic uh, with that cold front moving through. Uh, showers will extend through most parts during the day, contracting to western and southern parts in the evening. Uh, small hail possible in the southwest, thunderstorms over southern parts. Rainfall wise uh, in the central wheat belt and central west, uh, three to five millimetres. Great, uh, great southern looking at four to eight. Lower west, uh, southwest, and the south coastal, eight to 15 millimetres, and the southeast coastal around four to 12. And much activity in northern and eastern parts of the state, Matt. Yep, uh, especially over the eastern parts over the next four days. So on Friday, showers and thunderstorms through the Kimberley, eastern Pilbara, uh, in the interior, through the goldfields and the southern parts of the Gascoigne there. Um, and then into Saturday, fairly similar. The thunderstorms are moving a little bit eastwards uh, through the Kimberley, through the interior, through most of the goldfields and the Eucla. And then on Sunday, showers and thunderstorms through the Kimberley, Eastern parts of the interior through the Eucla and the southeast parts of the gold fields, and moving further eastwards there on Monday, just through the northern parts of the interior and the Kimberley and the southeast, or well, through the Eucla and the far south of the interior there on Monday, those showers and thunderstorms. And anything to look out for this afternoon as far as warnings go, Matt? Uh, there's a fairly slight risk that we might see a good gust in the far northern goldfields um, but generally uh, not not nothing significant with nothing too significant with the thunderstorms uh, only a very slight risk um, but we do have some strong winds today we've got strong winds uh, for the Geraldton coast Lansing coast through the Bunbury geograph and Cape Lewin coast and we've got a fire weather warning for the west Kimberley coast Kimberley inland uh, west Pilbara coast Ashburton inland Gascoigne inland, northern interior and the inland central west. Thanks for the wrap, Matt. Appreciate that. 25 to 1. No rain over 5 millimetres right across the state in the last 24 hours to 9 o'clock this morning. Just before the news at 1, off to Mount Barker for the results of the cattle market and just looking at how much red meat you've been eating uh, since COVID really kicked in. Apparently, when there's a pandemic around, you really do like to head to the meat section in the supermarket and reach for the red meat. Looking at that more closely shortly here on the Country Hour. First up, though, one of WA's most experienced water experts was here on the Country Hour yesterday telling you about his deep concerns about a planned $70 million irrigation project in the state's southwest, former Department of Water Director General Kim Taylor believes the Southern Forests Irrigation Scheme would be an environmental and financial disaster. I think this scheme is just a massive gamble, and it's a gamble of $60 million of taxpayers' money and a gamble on, on an environment which is already highly stressed due to climate change. 
I can't understand why the Minister for Agriculture and the Minister for Water are still standing behind the scheme. I think that they actually do know now that the scheme is flawed and that it's high risk. My only conclusion can be is that they don't want to admit the scheme is flawed at the moment because we're heading up into an election. Kim Taylor took particular aim at the modelling behind this project, saying it was critically flawed and overly optimistic in its assumptions about future water availability. If you're not familiar with it, the scheme will involve damming a tributary of the Donnelly River near Manjimup, about 300 kilometres south of Perth, and it's backed with $60 million of state and federal government money. Jeremy Bauer is head of the Southern Forests Irrigation Scheme Chief Executive, and he's confident in the modelling done by the Department of Water and Environmental Regulation. I'm not aware of what Mr Taylor's methodology is or, or how that's been verified for him to come up with his commentary. I am aware, though, he's certainly used a much shorter time period of the historical climate to predict the future as opposed to Dewar's methodology, which uses a longer term, you know, for example, 30-year climate sequence to capture the significant variability in rainfall, which I believe is appropriate. You're quite right. Kim Taylor has put more emphasis on recent rainfall levels rather than longer historical averages. But is that perhaps a more prudent approach given the step changes in decline in rainfall that we've seen in Western Australia over the past 50 years? Well, not according to DWER, Bureau and CSIRO. As I said before, we can only go on the advice we're provided. We're the farming side, we're applicants. Mr Taylor's he has used rainfall reduction factors of up to 15% less than, the, than the, the projected averages, which is a lot drier than any projections that DWER and these other agencies have seen out to 2030 and 2050. So naturally that would look worse. So you think perhaps he's being overly pessimistic? Well, that would suggest so. At the top, you mentioned that the department has been consistent in its messaging to the cooperative and you have confidence in what the department has been telling you and reporting to you. When someone like Kim Taylor makes comments like he did yesterday, does it shake your confidence at all? You know, certainly we listen to, as I said at the start, any challenges to the information and this hasn't been the only one and we go back and we investigate. We ask DWER. We asked them, you know, we said there's contradictory information out there. Can you please look at this and advise us? And then we make a decision. We don't just get scared by someone else saying something. Uh, That's not the way we look at risk mitigation for our business. The dam will have a capacity of 15 gigalitres or 15 billion litres for the layman. Correct. Uh, What will be the annual take from it, do you know, for commercial purposes? We'll have a a licence to supply up to 9.3 gigalitres per annum. If there are shortfalls of rain which result in shortfalls of water being captured by the dam, is the proportion or is the amount of water that can be delivered just proportionally reduced? How does that work? Yeah, that's right. So there's, as part of the contracts, there's an understanding from the members. It's a pro rata delivery, effectively. 
as per the the Tasmanian irrigation schemes, where this business model is is uh, come through to this stage, and same with Harvey Water, I might add, if there's not uh, a full allocation available, then it's prorated based on your uh, entitlement. In the event of low runoff, will shortfalls just be borne by the farmers themselves, the cooperative members, or will there be capacity for the cooperative to take extra water from the environment? No, we're not under not under the scenario that we propose in this project. The environment comes first. That's been the work by the department and a number of consultants. They've reviewed the uh, particular environmental fro- flows for the Donnelly River, and you know it's a simple scenario, uh, Daniel. You don't bite the hand that feeds you. So this is a long-term project providing water for a really important industry. So it doesn't make sense to take any more than the environment can handle. The project has an estimated cost of $70 million, which is a significant amount of money. Given the the risks inherent in relying on water supply, and when I say water supply, I mean rainfall in the southwest of Western Australia in this day and age, do you think it's a, it's a risky proposition, but, you know, spending that much money on a project which is so reliant essentially on rainfalling? No, I think it's it's a a responsible adaptation to climate change. Diversifying water supply is certainly a sound response. The you're suggesting that there won't be any rainfall or, or much limited rainfall going forward. It's very difficult to forecast that it's going to just get drier and drier. We believe it may be a driving climate, but even under the driest scenarios out to twenty fifty this project still delivers additional water to these growers which supply over 20% of the state's irrigated produce. So I believe the investment is certainly worthwhile. Southern Forests Irrigation Scheme Chief Executive Jeremy Boa speaking to Daniel Mercer. And you're probably keen to take this to the top, to the State Water Minister Dave Kelly or Agriculture Minister Alana McTinn. And those calls are out and hopefully one of them might bob up maybe uh, next week or so. On the text, Stuart says, this is going to kill thousands of insects and other creatures, let alone the loss of good forest. Another stupid plan, according to Stuart. You can be part of the conversation too on the text 0448 922604 18 to 1 This is the Country Hour with Belinda Varaschetti on ABC Local Radio WA Shortly talking about how much red meat you've been eating over COVID and then the results of the Mount Barker cattle market. And if Australia wants a decent share of the world's growing feed grain markets, it really needs to embrace new breeding technologies and make changes to the Wheat Quality Australia classification process. That's how Tress Wamsley sees it anyway. She's the CEO of Intergrain, a Perth-based cereal breeding company that's funded by the WA government and the Grains Research and Development Corporation. She says a quick look at the numbers will show you the opportunities are there. In Southeast Asia, the feed grain industry has been growing at about 6% per annum compared to the flour milling industry at just 2%. 
Tress Wormsley says the immediate focus is on developing new varieties of feed barley. When we think about feed varieties in our business, it is a long-term perspective that we take. But in the immediate pipeline, there's probably a stronger level of feed varieties coming through in the barley pipeline. And that really for our business has been a very fast response to the China barley tariff. So we've really had to pivot very quickly to go right we're going to have to strongly focus on agronomic traits that the growers want and and high yield because we know that we're going to be really shipping into a feed barley variety market. In terms of wheat, it hasn't been a strong driver to focus just on feed wheat varieties. That really is, I suppose, the response that many of the growers still elect to grow a milling variety and that means that for us as a breeding company we're governed by the classification requirements that we have to look at. Is that going to take a change of mindset I guess from a grower's perspective to recognise that there are really great opportunities for feed grain going forward? I, I think it does it's and it's you know you get stuck in these chicken and egg cycles which goes first the growers change changing their planting um, choices that they make or does the breeding company go first and you know strongly develop a, a feed wheat program so for us we've taken a little bit of a slightly different perspective of it and said right can we as an industry look at a lot of people say to us well we don't want to go down that direct competition with the black sea market it's a race to the bottom and you know we should actually dedicate more of our focus on value adding and increasing quality but i'm a strong advocate for market differentiation and i actually feel that if we're clever as an industry we can actually market differentiate into that feed market as well so we've been having a lot of conversations at wheat quality australia about how do we actually create a new class that is designed to take the Australian wheat competitive strengths that we have, which are things like hard white wheat that's clean and dry, and pitch that to create a new class that is really just above the Black Sea material that is delivered. And so I suppose as an industry, I see that there's a big opportunity to go in just at that level. And if we remove the quality traits from our breeding program and focus really just on the agronomic and and yield, we can have a significant impact on increasing yield, which is the example that we want to try for. And what are the breeding technologies that you envisaged using to try and come up with some of those varieties? Obviously, yield is king when it comes to these feed varieties? Yeah, so there's, re- there's, there's many levers that in a breeding program we can pull, but there are some new breeding technologies coming into the market and I mean, growers would have been starting to hear quite a lot about gene editing. And now that the OGTR in Australia has basically said that one particular form of gene editing, which we refer to as SDN1 types, is uh, not going to require um, a regulatory process, uh, I think we're going to start to see quite a lot of breeding companies stepping into using that as a tool that we have. 
And we've seen in other crops where that technology has been applied that they've been able to have some significant yield gains. Um, and in some crops such as uh, corn and soy uh, or tomatoes, you know, they're talking about 10% yield increases. So, you know, there'll be, a, I think, a, a strong emphasis on breeding companies looking at that. But the new breeding technologies is only one tool that we have in our breeding program. There's some other very strategic things that we can do as an industry. And if I go back to the example of what we were talking about and discussing at Wheat Quality Australia. So at the moment, to release a variety in the Wheat Quality Australia classification process, we have to breed for a number of quality targets. And just to give a little maths example of, of what that does to our breeding population sizes. So if we, and I'll take you through a very quick maths example. So if we have a breeding population, let's say 10,000 individuals, and we have to select for 10 different quality traits, so that might be milling, loaf volume, colour, strength and extensibility. There's a whole raft of the quality traits and genes that we have to look for. If we wanted to find 10 of those quality traits, then in that population of 10,000, there would actually be only 10 lines that had the right gene combination. If we said, well, we only want to look for six quality traits, then we increase our chance in finding one in a population up to 156 individuals. But if we only bred for one weak quality trait in that population, there would actually be 5,000. So if we simply said we are just going to look for hard wheat or white wheat, we rapidly change our probability of being able to focus on other traits and make improvements such as yield. So for me, there's lots of opportunities of, of how we breed for feed. But if we circle right back to your opening question of, you know, is it in the immediate pipeline? For wheat, probably not. Uh, it's going to take us a while to deliver this through the pipeline. So without that structure, that classification changing, is that really holding the Australian industry back from those feed grain opportunities that exist around the world? I think I would actually say yes. I do believe the breeding companies are being constrained and, you know, maybe that is partly our fault. We've got to go through some maybe have changed our risk profile to say, well, we'll jump into this space even though uh, we know that we're going to have to take the growers and the industry on a large path. But, I mean, this is the, the primary goal of Wheat Quality Australia is that's the platform where the industry comes together and, you know, has these big major structural decisions and conversations. And what's the time frame that you look at when, I mean, it sounds quite a slow process when you're talking about all the different uh, levels and players in the grains industry a huge conversations about those changes and finally getting to the other side of that. Yeah, I mean, this is a conversation uh, that has actually been going on for over 12 months now and I mean, we are making progress and it's an incredibly complex uh, discussion that needs to go because, you know, the breeders can say, well, if we had this opportunity and, and then, you know, a grain trader says, but that radically changes the risk profile of what we're working on. So it is a learning process for all of us, but 
yeah, I mean, I, I think that as an industry and particularly for the growers, we need them to be advocating that these are markets that they would be willing to grow and want to get into. Tress Wormsley, she is the CEO of Intergrain. Eight to one. Australia's domestic meat industry has remained fairly immune to the impacts of COVID-19, with sales increasing by 30% since the first stage of lockdowns came into force. Patrick Hutchinson is the CEO of the Australian Meat Industry Council, and he says in times of crisis, you like to eat red meat. The situation of all different types of supply chains, whether that be feedlot processing, whether that be farm direct to processing, whether that be via sale yard or any other combination, has been relatively unaffected, other than in Victoria where we've seen workplace restrictions on abattoirs, which we hope will be removed in the next week so that Australia will be back to 100% fully functioning supply chain. And so domestic sales have been up? Yeah, so certainly in the first wave where every state was under the same restrictions, we've seen domestic sales actually increase by about 30% where there was, as we know, a mixture of panic buying and storing and the like. What we saw was in the time of crisis or, or issue that everyone goes back to red meat. Now, the initial panic buying did cause that spike in domestic sales, but it was the home delivery service that started to play a really crucial role in maintaining the strong demand for red meat. And Patrick Hutchinson says he's confident the market is here to stay. We don't see that pulling back in any way. And in fact, we probably see, more importantly, that um, it's going to be a mainstay of our society moving into the future. So look, very strong indications across the board in our domestic supply that people have come back to meat, but more importantly, that they've found ways to further obtain meat uh, in different ways. We should recognise that Australia is still our biggest market. So our next biggest market is China, and that takes, for our total exports, it takes about 29% of the you know 68% that we export. So 32% of product is still, still remains in Australia on its own. So we always need to recognise and make sure that uh, we make that work. It's the way in which people access our product from COVID that will be the real big changer okay, moving into the future. Patrick Hutchinson, CEO of the Australian Meat Industry Council with James Liveris. Pastoralist Annabelle Coppin is the founder of Outback Beef and owner of Yarry Station, about 70 kilometres northeast of Marble Bar. Now, the Coppins have been prominent cattlemen in the Pilbara for more than a century, but she never imagined it would be a global pandemic that would send her beef business through the roof. For the pastoral section, we were wondering if export markets were going to be really um, sharply and abruptly finished due to shipping lines shutting or something like that. So far, that's good. I guess the question ahead will be, if the world is in recession, who's going to be able to afford to eat beef and is that going to affect prices? That's looking ahead. We need to think about that sort of thing for our business going ahead. But we sort of we had the, the opposite to that in the outback beef was a lot of people wanted home-delivered beef and they wanted it pretty quick and they really valued where the beef was coming from and that it was secure and that we we could say, yep, we won't be running out of beef. It doesn't matter that the shop shelves are empty. We can deliver it to you and you know where it came from and you know that we're reliable. And for a few months there, our beef 
outback beef business really boomed on that uh, section and it kind of doubled our output at, at the time. It's sort of settled down again now and I think maybe people's freezers are full or they've gone back to their old convenience habit of going to the supermarket shelf. I guess it just gave us a bit of a boost, a confidence boost that we're heading in the right track with a brand of beef product, that we're consistent, we're local and that we can supply what we say and, and we're pretty genuine about it. I've noticed speaking to a few people when I went down to Perth, they had been doing exactly that during COVID. They thought, oh, I may as well support the pastoralist or the farmer and, and know where the, the meat's actually coming from and started doing those orders. Whereabouts were you getting your demand from? Oh, oh, everywhere through the Pilbara and Perth, there was a growth. We mainly focus on the Pilbara because that's what we're aiming to do, supply local beef. We also have an outlet through Perth as well. So in both of those areas, there was a strong demand and just a feeling of people were thankful that they had producers and farmers. And I think that's carried through. I think people are going back to their old habits of taking things for granted. However, I think that it was probably the first time for many Australians where food was really important and it was really important to have something in your fridge. So I think that... You know, overall, it's probably, there's always positives from pressure and let's hope it's a positive for the Australian ag industry that we have a bit of support about having a strong supply chain and a consistent food supply chain. Pastoralist Annabelle Coppin from Yarry Station in the Pilbara with James Liveris. WA's biggest sheep and cattle processor, V&V Walsh, saw an overall 30% spike in average sales during the initial phase of COVID lockdown. And Peter Walsh from the company says some weeks sales increased as high as 50%. However, he says in the last few months, sales have returned to normal. Two and a half to one to the Mount Barker cattle market now. It's still underway. Tracy Kilner is there. Tracy, can you go through the prices so far? Hi, Belinda. Angus PTIC cow sold by appraisal for $1,950 and $1,900, while a pen of Murray Grays sold for $1,800 a head. Wiener steers weighing over 330 kilos, made from 394 to 434. Steers weighing between 280 and 330 kilos, sold for 334 to 448 cents, and the lighter weights returned 448 to 482 cents a kilo. The Wiener heifers weighing over 330 kilos, sold from 370 to 376, and lighter weights gained selling for 380 to 438 cents a kilo. Yearling steers weighing over 400 kilos sold for 358 to 390 cents and lighter weights from 364 to 482 cents. Heavy yearling heifers made from 324 to 360 cents and lighter weights returned 340 to 402 cents a kilo. The bullocks weighing over 600 kilos made 282 to 338 cents. Grown steers weighing over 500 kilos sold for 290 to 356 cents. And lighter weights under 500 kilos made from 334 to 368 cents a kilo. Grown heifers weighing over 540 kilos made 308 to 324 cents, while the lighter weights sold for 308 to 338 cents a kilo. Heavy prime cows returned 228 to 272 cents. Medium weight cows sold for 244 to 262 cents to processors and 256 cents to feeders. 
Store cows made from 202 to 250 cents to processors, from 150 to 244 cents to feeder buyers, and young Angus cows going back to the paddock sold for 296 cents a kilo. Heavy bulls made from 268 to 290 cents to processors and 300 cents to live export. Medium weight bulls went to live export for 290 cents, and the lightweight bullies sold for 362 to 426 cents, depending on quality. This has been Tracy Kilner for Meat and Livestock Australia's National Livestock Reporting Service. Uh, Tracy, thank you for going through that. That is, well, partly a wrap of the Mount Barker cattle market. As you heard earlier, the sale is still underway. So, Tracy, just giving you the preliminary results. News time, one o'clock. You've been listening to an ABC podcast. Discover more great ABC podcasts, live radio, and exclusives on the ABC Listen app.